0: Time to play the game.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome to the sixty-first episode of the Game Podcast. I am your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gottlieb, aka Foxy Loxy. What
0: the hell is this? So, I had to track down this name. I, I knew the concept I was going for with my name this week, but I couldn't remember the name. Foxy Loxy is the fox in Chicken Little. That like eats the other animals while Chicken Little is running around saying the sky okay. is falling. Okay. And that's what we're going to be doing this week. I'm going to make everyone here into Foxy Loxies while everyone runs around and complains and says that Jace and Bloodbraid Elf are about to take over the format. We're going to give you actual information here and let you know how to prey on the people who are too busy panicking to actually see what's going on.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm ready to rumble. I, I'm totally on your side with this. Yeah, there's a billion things to talk
0: about. It feels like it's been ages since we last did a podcast. It's probably only been like, what, two and a half, three weeks, but it literally feels like it's been five years.
1: A lot of stuff has happened, man. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I guess we're going to talk about the Pro Tour, we're going to talk about GP Toronto, we're going to talk about the unbannings, and then we're going to talk about why talking about the Pro Tour and Toronto are still relevant.
0: Right, I, I think we have to cover all that stuff. Just so much, a mind-boggling amount of magic news and events, both you know, in a broader sense, and just here within the game podcast, have happened over the past two
1: weeks, and we got to hit them all. So let's do it. Yeah, man, we we kind of nailed it. We we kind of did like pretty good. I don't know how you feel about your finish, but my finish was pretty good. Yeah, well, you're
0: certainly a little bit better than mine, but. It's, it's been a while since I had an even decent finish. It was nice to kind of like get off the snide. It wasn't a, you know, world beating performance, but I found a deck that I, you know, had some enjoyment with. I, I thought it was a good choice for the tournament. Did pretty well, so yeah, happy about it. But I, I think we're burying the lead if we talk
1: about my stuff before we talk about your past tournament performance. So, yeah, for real, just go ahead and and uh, you know you're you're the host for this segment, I guess. Good, good. I,
0: I like that because I have about a billion questions to ask. So probably, as everyone listening knows, you showed up at Pro Tour at Rivals of Ixalan and cruised right into a second place finish. So, you know, a little bit of a mixed bag, condolences, congratulations type deal. I, I know that you're probably extremely pleased with your performance. So why don't we just kind of start at the beginning, talk about le- the weeks leading up to the Pro Tour, how you prepared and, and eventually how you got to, you know, the deck decision you reached because you absolutely dominated the modern format at this tournament.
1: Yeah, I kind of did. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really weird. I, w- <laughs> I would not say that... Mardu Pyromancer is a deck that you're going to routinely go 11-1-1 one one with at the PT, but it is what it is, you know? First of all, no condolences necessary for the second place finish. I will basically never be upset about seconds. And other than that, I left for the Pro Tour by borrowing two copies of Boggles for me and Josh Cho to play with. Okay. And I also brought some other modern cards. I didn't bring all of my modern cards, but I brought the stuff for like the seven decks I was considering playing. And among them were a lot of the Marty Pyromancer stuff. So it was on the table and just slowly over the course of the week, it was like, all right, boggles might be well positioned, but it's just kind of a crappy deck.
0: Right. It's, it's always got that inherent tension where it may be the best possible choice, but you'll lose some number of games to yourself on a regular basis. And it also just like doing the same thing every time. And you kind of just have to hope that thing is good enough.
1: Yeah. And it's fine. I don't mind doing that. But like, you know, if you have hands that don't have a one drop creature or you have hands that don't have enough ways to like pump your creature and you're just like attacking them for three or whatever, it's like, come on, you know, what, what are you doing? It's just just weird because basically every time I play against Boggles, it feels like, you know, they, they just always play like dude into Rancor into Coronet and I just die.
0: Yeah, it's got something that we in the League of Legends business called the Shaco Syndrome, where it's something where when you use it, it feels completely underwhelming. And when your opponents are using it, it's like, how does anyone ever beat the deck? That's good. I like that. I like that there is a
1: term for that. Yeah, yeah. Shaco and Yasuo
0: are the big champs in League of Legends that it always feels that way. If they're on your team, they're absolute garbage. If you're against them, they're unbeatable.
1: Okay, sick. So kind of cross boggles off and then... Humans was sort of a backup choice, but it was like, ah, I'm pretty sure like this is just gonna be the most popular deck, and I didn't really want to just like play human mirrors, and I thought that people would realize that it was gonna be the most popular deck, and I, I made up a bunch of reasons why I did not think that it was like the best default choice. And then there was Grix's Death Shadow, which seemed pretty bad against humans, especially when you're like trying to main deck a bunch of stubborn denials to beat the big mana decks and black green mid-range was like okay but not super exciting i tried the blue red madcap moon through the breach decks i liked the through the breach one better but still was not super impressive and then uh Efro got at me with the white blue eldrazi and taxes deck and i started playing with that and different versions of it and stuff and it seemed like it could potentially be good, except it was bad against humans and possibly also just a bad version of humans. So then it was just sort of back to the drawing board. And then that was Thursday, the day b- before the Pro Tour. So that morning I got up kind of early, joined a league with Maru Pyromancer, went 2-2, uh, dropped, and was just like, yeah, if I don't draw Bedlam Reveler, like it's really, really tough for this deck to win, like Borderline Impossible, right? Uh, although one of the decks that I did beat was Tron, which was nice. It was like, oh, this is like a mid-range deck that actually has game against this. So that was kind of exciting. And then I joined a league with Death Shadow, was 2-0, lost to Burn very, very horribly in round three. And then uh, it was kind of time to just like, you know, get food, wake everyone up. Mattia Rizzi showed up at our Airbnb and I was talking to him about Modern and what he was playing and uh, eventually just like, I, I don't know why, but I had to like, pry it out of him you know i don't know if he was like embarrassed or like it was like secret and he was trying to like you know save it for himself or whatever but he was playing mardu and i'm just like okay well like these are my concerns and he's just like this is how i fixed all this stuff and then uh i had some issues with his list he had a distinct lack of wear tear and was like kind of using his sideboard slots poorly where like he had a thought season a sideboard and stuff just things like that where it's like yeah you're gonna bring this in in a lot of matchups and it's Nice to have, but like it's not a good use of an actual sideboard slot. So I ended up changing a few cards from his list, and the wear and tears were basically incredible for me in a lot of very important spots. And yeah, I went nine oh one in the Swiss. He went two seven and one.
0: So the master of the deck who brings it to you and and puts it into your lap is unable to convert the performance, and you cruise on to a second place finish. That's that's the way it always goes, man. Oh, it always feels that way.
1: Oh yeah, no. If if you're the guy like giving out your deck list, you're you're dead.
0: Completely you doomed, yeah.
1: And everyone else is gonna do well with your deck and you're just gonna be like, you know, looking on from the sidelines, like what the hell? Uh
0: I wanna I wanna read the message you sent me. I think this you either sent this to me the night before the Pro Tour or the morning of <laughs> you say, I played one league, dropped at two two, asked Mateo Rizzi for his deck list, changed ten cards and probably made it worse. And then check in the next day, uh, yeah. and you're 901 dominating the entire <laughs> tournament. So, what happened where you're sitting there about to play the Pro Tour? Send me a message basically saying, I kind of have no chance here. I mean, I don't know if you actually felt like you had no chance, but you were certainly downplaying, like, you didn't think you broke it. You didn't think you found the secret to this format, right?
1: No, no, of course not. I knew that. Humans was going to be a pretty popular deck, and I ended up playing against four of them in the Swiss, and the, the games themselves were all generally pretty close, but I just ended up beating all of them. And I played against Eldrazi Tron twice, which Matias said is like unwinnable, and I just like smashed them both. Played against Death Shadow once, played against Ad Nauseam once, which is where the wear and tears were great. Sure. Yeah, man, I don't know. Like, I, I never played against Tron. I never played against Scapeshift. Shift. I played against like one aggro-ish Jeskai deck. It it just seemed like the deck didn't really stutter like it did when I played that league, you know? And I don't know how much of it was like, you know, maybe my one Metamorphose was gas or maybe the Liliana of the Veils that Mattia added to the deck were great, you know? Like, I'm not sure exactly like what specific thing it was. Like, certainly I ran above expectation and that's great, but like the deck did feel really good.
0: Yeah, it looks super impressive on camera. I will say that watching your matches was maybe the most stressed out I've ever been watching matches of Matt. All of your games were so – like I can't even count how many games you won on one life. It was absolutely preposterous. Every time you were in the feature match area, you were on one, always. They were so fun. That's how I like to play Magic. It was crazy. I mean it it was super – enthralling to watch it was super stressful like my wife kept checking in on me and i'm like on the couch making noises and gasping and yelling (laughs) at the television she's like are you okay out here i'm like it's fine don't worry about it just just leave me alone for the time being i need to watch this pro tour match i'm super into it but but yeah it was uh certainly i think a deck that we had spoken about in the weeks prior and one that we were both kind of like yeah maybe there's something there it's an interesting take so you don't think you have anything in particular you you can point to, to say, this is my innovation. This is what I did to push this deck into kind of tier one, if it sits in tier one right now. And I think, you know, the GP results kind of following point to this deck being a tier one deck, absolutely the default mid-range strategy, at least, you know, prior to the announcements of Monday, it was probably the the tier one mid-range strategy.
1: Yeah, it it got ninth and 10th of the Grand Prix. So it wasn't in the top eight, but... Uh, I kind of like its chances for the most part against the decks in top eight outside of like maybe burn and boggles.
0: Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I, t- I hung out a lot with Matt Ferrando who finished 10th with Pyromancer in the tournament and he picked up kind of an unfortunate draw pretty early on in a match. He said he was going to win, but he said the deck felt amazing. He felt like he had a game against everyone. He felt like he kind of had figured out a good plan for Tron playing a couple Hazarettes. Uh, between the main and sideboard, and he said he was really impressed with them. So, you know, I I think kind of we're in the burgeoning stages of the archetype. There's probably still a lot of innovation to do, a lot of tuning to do, a lot of optimizing to do, and Bedlam Reveler is a modern magic card. Like, without a doubt, that's an absolutely super powerful card that is going to, um, you know, be a player in the metagame going forward, and I don't think that this will be its only home. It's underplayed at this point still.
1: Yeah, I mean, I so uh, back to what you said about the the changes that I made or that Mattia made, like cutting the Swiss beers and probably cutting the fork bolts and making like just playing like real magic cards, cards. you know. I think yeah, like I, I think that helps a lot. Like having things like Fatal Push, so you can kill a five five champion of the Parish a, a little bit easier, and like you know, transformed thing in the Ices, I guess. Like, I guess that's a thing, right? Yeah, those little changes did help a lot, even if it's not anything like. Uh, a complete overhaul of the archetype or anything. Right. But as far as Bedlam Reveler, I tried to make that card work when it first came out. And I eventually came to the conclusion that you need to play looting alongside it and also playing reactive cards is not where you want to be. Like I was playing like Mana Leaks and Grixis and stuff like that. Right. So I was kind of there, but yeah, like Mardu is just like a very, very good home for it. And I don't know if it's going to start showing up in other places. Like people have talked about it uh, even in like our, our discord with like traverse in death shadow and stuff like that. And now people are playing like metamorphos in these decks, which I think is, is really good and really smart, especially be- with bedlam reveler. So maybe there's like another home or two for the card, but for the most part, I feel like you need to play looting. You need to play souls and discard. So it just seems like Mardu might just be the only home.
0: I kind of wonder if... You know, as time goes on, Metamorphos is a card that we're going to look back on and be like, I was supposed to be playing a lot more copies of this card all along. It, it kind of has a home in a lot more spots than we think it does. I tried kind of maximizing the numbers of Metamorphos right after your good performance, just because I wanted to see how far you can push it. And there are weaknesses for sure. Like the vulnerability you add to something like Thalia and you've got more stubborn denial targets and things like that certainly do come up. But I think that Metamorphose might have been one of those cards where like, you know, if you go back and look at something like Standard Fairies, where we never played Ponder in our Standard Fairies list because we just kind of didn't understand the card and how important it was. You know, it started to creep into the format towards the end of time, but in general, it was underplayed in the archetype. I think that Metamorphose might prove to be a similar card. We kind of underrated it because it's very innocuous on its face. But we may look back on this kind of era of modern and be like, we should have been playing a lot more Metamorphoses.
1: It's possible. I mean, uh, Street Wraith. I think is the card that has kind of gotten unlocked as of late. Where it's just like, oh, this is good in decks that are not Living End. But like, you, ne- it's not. It's not a card that you just like jam in every deck, right? But like, Street Wraith with Bobble and Traverse the Uvenwald is like a very important package for Modern and Manamorphos with Bedlam Reveler and like Traverse. Like, if there are places for Metamorphos to slot in, then yeah, I, I think it is possible that you should be playing more. Like maybe Pascal was supposed to have them in his like blue red thing in the ice deck, right?
0: Right. Right. I was going to say that's exactly what I was heading towards. You know, young Pyromancer kind of, maybe it demands Manamorphos. Maybe thing in the ice demands Metamorphos and uh, is kind of the key to upping those archetypes into the next tier. So something I definitely want to explore going forward.
1: And it's like good with Logic Knot and, mm. You can cast Logic Knot off Mountain, or if you have, like, Mountain Field of Ruin, you can cast Cryptic Command. Like, I used Manamorphose to splash Scapeshift in a blue-red control deck back when uh, the dual lands were not legal and extended, and that was, like, for Worlds one year, and that deck was sweet, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I, I, I definitely agree. And Manamorphose, I played one copy. Uh, Josh Layton played three copies in his Traverse Dash Shadow deck, and... It was kind of funny because, like, he cut his last Manamorphose for a Terminate because people were scared of Thalia. I only played one Manamorphose because of Thalia, and I cut a Terminate for it.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So, <laughs> different approaches to the the same problem, kind of.
1: Yeah, it was it was very adorable. And Manamorphose was one of the cards that I kind of felt like, oh, maybe I'm just like adding nonsense to Mattia's deck, and maybe I'm playing these wear tears, and I'm just going to have like no targets or whatever. But, like, you know, I killed Phyrexian on life and I got to kill some Chalices with it. And if I play against like Ken Yukihiro and top eight, like I was going to kill Hollow One and Leyline of the Void, you know, like it's just one of those things where he, he was just like, you know, what is this even good against? And it's just like, I don't know, man, it's it's modern. Like you kind of just want answers to things. Right,
0: broad catch-alls are, there's a lot of value in having those in your 75. You need answers. You never know what you're going to face in modern as evidenced by the incredibly diverse uh, metagame we saw both in the Pro Tour and in the GP the next weekend. Crazy stuff. Just super diversity across the field. Also, I, I kind of want to check in with you as a player of that Pro Tour. As a viewer of the Modern Pro Tour, it was the most engrossing Pro Tour I've watched in years, to be honest with you. It was an amazing viewing experience. What was it like being in the Modern Pro Tour? Because we know there were a lot of concerns going into this Pro Tour. Uh, people were saying yeah. this may not have been the appropriate format for a Pro Tour, People were just worried that the pros were going to destroy the format. None of these things happened. It was an absolutely outstanding broadcast.
1: Yeah. And things like Death Shadow, you know, they, they didn't dominate, right? Like the top eight was seven different decks. And I think what has kind of happened is that there's just enough general disruption, especially in the humans deck to just make it so everyone has to play fair. The fear for modern is always that like someone is going to break it with like a turn three combo deck, right? But you just like you can't even really do that anymore. The tools aren't there, the decks aren't consistent enough, and the decks like humans just have things like meddling mage, thalia, freebooter, whatever, and like it's it's just really difficult to overcome that as a combo deck. So I yeah, modern is just we said this six months ago. It's like oh, modern's in the best place it's ever been. It's like no, now it's actually in the best place that it's ever been,
0: or at least for that pro tour. Yeah, totally agree. It was an amazing tournament to watch from start to finish, which I I did watch it from start to finish. At least I, I didn't miss any modern rounds. I know that I may have missed a few limited rounds here and there, but yeah, absolutely a success. And I want to see more modern pro tours. I don't think they need to increase it to large numbers of modern pro tours. I'm just saying, I think the once a year thing is going to work going forward. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next one.
1: Well, I mean, you never know when something is going to get printed, like, or something like as For told is going to get broken or whatever. Like you you never know. There could be a modern pro tour where, Eldrazi shows up, right? And it's just like, oh, okay, well, this this was a bad idea.
0: Right. Things could always go bad, for sure. And you know, that's kind of one of the fun things about Modern, though. In watching the Eldrazi Pro Tour, by the end of the tournament, certainly you were sick of seeing the Eldrazi mirror. But when the narrative was kind of developing and you start to realize, oh wow, there's this real broken deck here, it was exciting for that moment. So
1: yeah, until like round 7 or whatever. Right. It, I,
0: it it goes away. I'm not I'm not disputing that and things like that happening are not the ideal outcome, but I'd I'd rather see it happen a few times than live in fear of it, right? Like this event was so good that it's worth taking that chance in the future is my opinion right now.
1: Yeah, and that's legit. Even Toronto the week after it was like the top eight was fairly diverse and there were a bunch of different decks in that top eight that were not really present during the pro tour coverage. So it's like, okay, like modern is still in a good spot. Then, you know, things, things change. And hopefully by this time next year, like modern will be back to in a good spot if it is not already.
0: Yeah. I will just have to see. We'll, we'll be here watching, playing. Hopefully I would like to play some more pro tours. Maybe I'll play the next one. That would be nice. You should do that. I highly recommend it. I think that's a good idea. Anything else in regards to the Pro Tour? Huh, let me think. What else did I want to ask you about? Oh, I would love... I think if there's kind of a play that has become one of the... caster, yeah, One of the big stories of this Pro Tour, it was it was the Staticaster play. So why don't you kind of set that up? Talk us through it.
1: Uh, so I'm losing to this... Is it Staticaster?
0: Destroyed, Lose but real... it's
1: Staticaster. It looks unbeatable. Losing real bad. I have two bad Limb Revelers, five Elementals, two Spirits, right? And I have Lingering Souls in my Graveyard, basically no action. I think... I drew, like, a couple lands in a row, and then I draw Brutality for my turn, so now I have to make an attack where I'm not dead on board, my opponent is at, like, nine or seven, like, something kind of low, and I need to entice him to block a 1-1 with the Staticaster. Right. It's weird, because, like, if I attack with all the tokens and the Reveler, then... He's kind of incentivized to ping the five elementals so that he can just like take the two from the spirits, put like a noble in front of my Bedlam Reveler, not take a lot of damage, not have to risk his Staticaster in combat, right? Mm. So I also want to make it so he wants to keep the Staticaster up to kill the spirits uh, in case I drew like a lightning bolt or terminator or something that just like hard killed the Staticaster, right? So like, yeah, I just have to make this attack where it like looks kind of threatening and like okay, like, I guess I should just block with this thing to like soak up a point of damage so I don't die to like double lightning bolt or something stupid, you know? And I had to also do it very quickly. Like I can't overthink things. And then it it just kind of like tips my hand, you know? Right. So I attacked with just the elementals because it looks sort of like this this suicidal, like, oh, my stuff's going to die, whatever. Like I'll keep the spirits back to make you use the static caster on them. And then I'll keep these Bedlam Revelers back to also block stuff. And it, it just ended up working perfectly. Like, I do think that he could have just not blocked with Staticaster the way I attacked. Or he also could have just, like, pinged down the Elementals. But then if I do kill his Staticaster, then I have four Spirits. And his outs of killing me at that point are basically the Flyers. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a crazy situation, man.
0: Yeah, so there was a lot of discussion, kind of. One of the questions we got from the the Game Discord podcast, or excuse me, the Game Podcast Discord, um, was how do you make a bluff like that? And you just basically explained it. You create a narrative that makes sense. You you think about what exactly what the play looks like from your opponent's point of view, what they're afraid of at that point in time. And how do you, could you could possibly entice them into thinking such a block was correct? And you just absolutely laid it out. Like the, that's how it has to be done. You have to think about what they're thinking about on their side of the table. And you have to act with no fear because the second you're in the tank for an hour, it's like, all right, this guy's trying to pull something like there's obviously right. something going on. The alarm bells are off. You need to implement this plan quickly. And it's kind of one of the reasons why you're always incentivized to be thinking past the spot you're at in your turn. You need to be thinking about the turn you're about to take on your opponent's turn. So you can act quickly and be decisive and add these little wrinkles to your game where you're thinking about the way your opponent is perceiving you, not just in your onboard actions, but in your physical actions too. I've had a tremendous amount of success kind of altering my physical actions to tell a story to my opponent and using that to entice them in acting uh, in a way that I want them to act. And a lot of that is that, People have told me that I look extremely uncomfortable and awkward when I play Magic. And oftentimes, I think when people didn't know who I was, that led them to underrate me as a player. Because I'm clumsy. I'm clumsy with my cards. I look like I've never played a game of Magic before. And I would oh, kind of yeah. lean into that and use that to manipulate the way my opponents might perceive me and, and perceive my actions. Um, and I found a huge amount of success with it. So that's what bluffs are based on They're but they're based around the entire package of what your opponent is perceiving at that moment.
1: So fun little side note is that Javier is also a very, very accomplished poker player.
0: So you can run a bluff on someone who understands, like he knows what he's looking for.
1: Right. And the the thing with that is like, I, I think a lot of people in that situation, they would act differently. Like, oh, well, you know, maybe if I like seem unsure or like try and act like, oh, this... The statacaster is going to destroy me, and I'm just like going through the motions of attacking with these elementals or whatever. Like, Say I attack and like shrug or whatever. That is completely different than how I have acted every other turn, right? Right, right. He eats that up. Yeah, and it, it means something. Maybe he can't necessarily figure out what it means, but it definitely means something. So it's like when I attack with them, I just have to attack the exact same way I've been attacking so that I'm not exploitable.
0: Yeah, and you kind of bring up another corollary to the stuff I was just talking about is that you have to understand your opponent and you have to know your opponent's experience level and and what are they looking for. I mean, adding these little layers of nuance to your actions are not worth it against someone who is just not thinking about the game on that level. You have to think about your audience and, and really analyze whether your bluff is going to hit home and what actions are going to force it through. Against a really inexperienced player, maybe the sigh works where you just go, and pass the turn and then they believe you have nothing like i have certainly run that before where that's the level i put my opponent on and been successful with it but you have to tailor it to your opponent
1: second thoughts and now bright reprisal it's it's always just like the scion pass is what we refer to it as right Uh, resounding silence was another one where it's just like dude you have six cards in your hand and five open mana. like obviously you have something this is the most obvious bright reprisal in the world right yeah. But sometimes, yeah, you just like sigh and pass like you have nothing and your opponent just like attacks with their 6-6 and you just you smash them.
0: Yeah, it, it works. You, got, you have to analyze your opponent, but it does work from time to time.
1: Yeah, it you have to tell a story that is believable exactly to your opponent. And in this case, like I can't do any of that Bush League stuff against Javier because he's he's going to see right through me. You know, like it is not his first rodeo, right? Right. Right. So I just, I just have to make this attack where he's just like trying to eke out small edges and, you know, maybe he wants to be at five life instead of four when the dust clears for whatever reason. And he's just thinking like, oh, like he must've drawn a brick, right? Like this is, this is how he would attack if he drew a brick.
0: It's so funny too, because these things look totally different to the player in the moment, right? It's so easy to write these off as mistakes, but you know maybe Javier is thinking back to something that happened six turns ago that has created this narrative in his head where he thinks you have a certain combination of cards. He's convinced you're holding lightning bolt and it's plausible that you just do the second off the top, you know, and he he's gotten himself to that place. And people are so quick to criticize people when they make kind of these wrong blocks. I always think of like the, the Finkel Kibler match. Um, I think Kibler was holding like triple bolt or something like that. and was able to kill Finkel after Finkel, elected not to make what seemed like kind of an obvious block. But in retrospect, the, the passing of the block made a lot of sense because you're telling yourself a narrative throughout the course of the game, not just on that one turn. I don't think Javier made a mistake. I think you played very well. He analyzed the circumstance and just kind of came out on the wrong end of it. And it happens to the best players in the world.
1: Yeah, and I don't know. It's just like I, I was in a position where I could give him rope to potentially hang himself, Right. right? Right. and and he just took it thankfully i don't remember the exact specifics like i don't know if it was the difference between going from four to five or whether or not instead of blocking with the static aster, he you could have just chumped with a noble hierarch and how much that would affect like his potential outs and everything like i also don't remember exactly how much time it took me to like make this attack but i do remember kind of like fiddling with a bedlam reveler at one point which i think was just a mistake mm-hmm. and i I, and I shouldn't have done that you know because like if I'm thinking like, oh, maybe I can also attack with, with this Bedlam Reveler. I think the, like that also gives him more information. Like, why would I think I can make that attack? Because I think that would just leave me dead on board.
0: All right. Yeah. I I don't remember the exact specifics either, but certainly a bluff that garnered a lot of excitement. Do you think it's the the kind of best bluff you've ever made? It's it has to be the biggest one, right, in a pro tour top eight.
1: Yeah, biggest one, like most money on the line for sure. But like. I think I was still, we were like 1-1 at that point, right? Like that was game three, and then I won game four. So it wasn't even like, oh, the match was on the line or whatever. Right. But I've I've had some bluffs too. Well, definitely one that I can remember that was just like masterfully crafted, I think. But past that, it's like, yeah, I mean, sometimes you attack your 2-2 into their 3-3 or whatever, and who cares?
0: Right, right. Do you have anything to say about your semifinals match? Because, man, was that (laughs) the most stressed out I've ever been watching a match of Magic.
1: It was fun. Uh, Raptor and I tested, like, I don't know, two games pre and two post. And that was, like, basically all we had time for. And the only conclusion I really came to was that, like, he's supposed to be a fish deck. He's supposed to be the aggressor because going long, I'm going to beat him. And the games are just going to be a lot of fun. You know, Mm -hmm. like they're, they're just very intricate, a lot of decisions on both sides. And it certainly was just like a very fun match. And me and Pascal were kind of joking when he played Serum Visions. I'm like, ah, the bad one, you know, not worried about that. It was always ancestral that I'm scared of. Right. Right. So game five on the play, he cracks a fetch and he's like, I have the good one. And I get to look at my hand and I'm just like, oh, this is going to be a fun game. And I just said that out loud.
0: Yeah. And it was, It, it absolutely delivered. Just incredible tension and swingy. They were such swingy games, all of them, just completely back and forth. And you know, fading his draw step when he had the thing in the ice in play, uh, and I think it was game four. So stressful. Um, and then just getting there in game five. Pretty incredible series of events for
1: sure. Yeah, man, it was it was good. Like that. Those are the the types of games of Magic I want to play, and this deck allows you to do that. So. Right. Right. I, I certainly enjoyed myself, and it just so happened that, like, the deck was actually good, and between me and Mattia we had pretty close to what could be, like, the best version of this deck. I think I was, you know, I, I wrote about some, like, updated stuff in my article where it's, like, maybe the Campbells would have sh- shored up some bad matchups, and I could have had some explosives instead of, like, the Anger of the Gods, and I definitely made a few deck-building errors that could have cost me against Lantern, you know, or at least... Mm-hmm. Maybe I could have put on a better show and like brought it to five games or whatever. Who knows? But.
0: Were you kind of resigned to your fate when it comes time for the finals? Did you think your matchup was that bad?
1: No, I thought I had a chance. I mean, I thought I was like 40% or something, but mm-hmm. like his draws were very good. and Yes, they were. Game one and two, I think I like multi five and six. Like my deck didn't really show up, which, you know, it, it shouldn't be like that big of a deal because like I only have X amount of cards that actually interact with them, you know? uh so it was like oh like mulligan this crappy lingering soul's hand into a crappy lingering soul's hand and it just kind of is what it is and then game three was actually pretty close and i needed to draw like one more piece of disruption to get his whir or like blow up a land before he could cast were, you know and then i think i, I could have actually won the game but right. yeah just came up short
0: right attitude to have you know sometimes you're gonna come up short and uh a frustrating matchup to watch for sure I, it was really heartbreaking you know, we saw the highs and lows of modern
1: in the course of the
0: top eight. So
1: yeah, I mean, dude, I, I ran bad in one match out of twelve. Right. Oh right. no, I'm I'm so upset. Like, yeah, it's a thirty thousand dollar match or whatever, but I still I still got the twenty. You know.
0: Right. That's a great attitude. It's I am impressed by it. I think in the moment I would have felt some some sadness, but you know, I, I I'm sure you'll be there again, and you'll have your opportunity to get yet another pro tour first place trophy as opposed to the second place trophy
1: yeah the second place trophy is not bad though
0: i thought it was really nice i was kind of impressed with it to be honest with you
1: yeah the silver i like better than the orange but yeah yeah i don't know I'm, i'm just at a point where especially modern i felt like if i have a good finish cool but i was not expecting anything whereas standard like I don't think that like I'm I'm going to win every single time, but I think I have a better chance. So this one was just more of a free roll than anything, especially since like I didn't know what deck to play, and I just kind of like added a nonsense metamorphos, which ended up being really good. And Mattia showed up out of nowhere to give me a deck list, you know, just like all these weird like happenstance things going on where I'm just like I'm not super committed to like my results of this tournament, and it just so happened that I ended up doing really well. But like at no point was I like oh man like I'm. I really want first place. Like, obviously I do, but at the same time, like, I'm I'm not going to be upset with second. Like, everything was a free roll.
0: I mean, everyone's dreaming of first place when they step into the room, but honestly, you're just looking for good results. And certainly this qualifies as a good result.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have 42 pro points now. I'm fifth in player of the year. I have six locked up for the next two pro tours, assuming I don't get DQ'd. Uh, so that's 48 and I need four extra for platinum again. And like, I'm like, I'm in good shape for worlds, you know, like, yeah, I guess I could have like won the PT and like, that's a big deal, like to, to win two pro tours or whatever. And especially in a short amount of time. And like, that would have locked me for worlds and everything, but it's like, things aren't bad, man. I'm in a really good spot
0: for sure. Is it starting to sink in at all that you're, you're probably one pro tour top eight away from the hall of fame?
1: I mean, I, I might get in anyway.
0: You might. I said I would vote for you, but I also recognize that I'm extremely biased. So my opinion probably doesn't matter whatsoever. But yeah, contribution to the game. I think there's something to be said for that. And three Pro Tours is not shabby, but the fourth one will lock it. I mean, I don't know. If you go back to just last year, I think it's probably a goal that maybe you had in your head long-term, but it wasn't something you felt was close, I'm assuming, right?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I kind of feel like what you just said, where it's like you know, four top eights would probably lock it up and that's cool. But also when I look at my pro tour results and like the history, it took me like 33 to top eight one. It took me another 15 to top eight. The second one, I thought it was going to take a lot longer to get the third one. Right. So now I'm just like, okay, sure. I guess I'll just top eight every three pro tours. Maybe it's a good rate. Who knows? Keep it up. Yeah. It's not bad. I don't know. I'm just Maybe I'm actually figuring this thing out, or maybe I'm just the luckiest person alive for this last 12 months. Who knows? I I think you'll
0: take either one. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. (laughs) Either one is fine. And just waiting for that fourth one. And I want to be at the Hall of Fame ceremony. I'm going to come regardless of where it is. That's my, that's my pact right now. I'm making it. It's, it's on audio. You can refer to it. I will be there when you get your induction.
1: Game podcast episode 61 noted.
0: And uh, we'll also do a live cast during the induction. I don't know how everyone else is going to feel about that, but it's just going to be me and you talking over the induction the whole time.
1: Ooh, that, that seems uh, kind of impolite, but yeah,
0: I'm they'll in. understand. I mean, we got to do it for our fans. They'll get it.
1: Yeah. Um, so any other, anything else from
0: the pro tour, anything else you want to wrap up with any other stories you want to tell?
1: Mardu's great. Liliana adds a lot to the deck. I don't think that it is uh, necessarily a lock for the archetype, but I do think that it helps you in a lot of your bad matchups. And my initial take was that you needed to draw Bedlam Reveler to win, and I'm still pretty close to that. But realistically, what you need to do is have cards that uh, allow you to trade your bad resources for their playable ones, which is a thing that Liliana does.
0: Hmm. That's an interesting kind of broad encapsulation of what the deck is trying to do. I like it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's like you're you're looting to sift through your hand, make your land drops, turn on your Bedlam Revelers, and just like keep the engine going, right? But like you don't necessarily need actual card flow. You just need to be able to trade your bad resources for their good ones. And a, a while ago, I was streaming and talking about like Jund and Liliana the Veil vale and stuff, and Daryl Ayers was in there, and he he compared Liliana the Veil, vale, uh, like what she does for Jund to casting brainstorm which is just the same thing
0: it's a really interesting comparison i guess i had never thought about it like that
1: yeah so this this deck is doing the exact same thing it's using looting as a brainstorm like if you have an extra land you pitch that if you have an extra removal spell you pitch that and you just use that to translate into something else you know
0: do you see vulnerabilities with the archetype going forward? Um, you know, what's what's the bad scenario for Mardu Pyromancer that kind of pushes it back to the fringes of the format again?
1: Yeah, it's weak to the same stuff that any mid range deck is weak to, except it's also really weak to Rest in Peace and Leyline of the Void. Yeah, like Tron is just going to be a deck. I think like people are realizing that like Tron is just hella good, and I think that they're just going to keep playing it. You basically need to have like Surgical plus Molten Rain in your board to have a shot. And there are there's going to be a time where people are like, oh man, I really don't want to play like all of these cards just for Tron. And then you're just going to lose to Tron. Right. So it, it does kind of suck that you're like kind of pigeonholed into having all of these cards just kind of like locked in. But yeah, like Burn's a bad matchup. Tron's bad. Ad Nauseum is kind of bad, but very winnable. And uh, like Scape Shift is probably pretty bad. Maybe I'll draw Z-Tron, supposedly, but I didn't have any issues with it.
0: Yeah, you, you're you probably not the person to ask about bad matchups right now after you just tear through the entire field and beat everyone, but uh, I'm sure they are out there.
1: Yeah, like, Lantern's not a good matchup, obviously, too. But, like, right. I, I can I can be objective. I can look at things and be like, oh, like, these are the things that I don't want to play against because they're hard. Yep. And that's what I try and do is just like, it, it's the same as any mid-range deck, you know? Like you're, you're going to be bad against like big mana and spell-based combo, just like the things that you're not very good at interacting with.
0: Makes sense to me. Like I said, I think this deck is kind of just taking up the mantle of the, the mid-range Liliana deck, same as it always was, same core spells, just doing something a little bit spicier in the late game, a little burst of power in the form of Bedlam Reveler and maximizing Faithless Looting. So cool take on the archetype for sure.
1: Yeah, Tarmogoyf just gets beat up by too many cards now. Like before it was just like the king of ground creatures, but now there's like Shadow and Gurmeg Angler and Reality Smasher and and Bringer whatever.
0: Yeah, things got real big real fast.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, so Tarmogoyf is not the virtual card advantage machine that it used to be. Right. So Mardu Mardu is what what's up? Sorry, Reed. Duke, your your Abzan deck is no good here. <sighs>
0: Reed played so masterfully in his winning in for top eight that you could totally see why he was able to win with Abzan, but it's hard for me to justify that choice going forward if you're not Reed Duke, because he played so well. It was it was actually jaw-dropping. Uh, it was one of those moments that made me feel really inferior as a magic player. If you haven't seen his match, because you were, you know, dominating the tournament, you should go back and watch it. It was really uh Yeah, amazing.
1: I I had to play my own winning in, so right. I didn't get to watch it. But right. I don't know. People were saying the same thing about me and I I don't know about that really, because like Raptor was very quick to point out like all the times I made mistakes. So <laughs> that's,
0: that's how, you know, your friends have your back when you're just like, yeah, you might've almost won this tournament, but you really played like crap along the way.
1: No, I mean, he, he thought that the, the static turn was like really bad.
0: Interesting. What was his basis for that? He just, he didn't think the outcome you got was,
1: you know, apt to happen nine times out of 10. It, it was some combination of that, but he was just like, Oh, I would have attacked with the spirits because of this. And I'm just like, no, like I wasn't trying to make an optimal attack. I was trying to make him block with Staticaster. Right. He, he just, he plays ABC. Like he doesn't know how to like trick his opponents basically. And like he'll play well and his opponents will just trick themselves. But like him teaming with like me and Josh Cho is like pretty funny because Cho and I have that capability and his, his mind just like doesn't work like that.
0: Yeah. I've seen that kind of dichotomy before with people I've, you know, played a bunch with who... They just don't operate in that way, but their X's and O's are so much better than mine and so clean. It's funny to see that there really are styles of magic play, which you wouldn't expect for like a card game. You expect there's a correct way, you know, there's a correct way to play chess, Uh, but I guess I I don't know chess very well. There's probably styles in chess too, to be honest with you, like hyper-aggressive players
1: and defensive players. There is. Um, I, I don't even know the rules to chess, but I know that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, I always am fascinated by like the beauty and the different styles of playing Magic. And I think that, you know, two people can take two different approaches to a match and, and both be correct. And that's one of the awesome things about Magic.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, we went deep on this. So tell me about Tron. Tell me about GP Toronto. Okay. I, I voted for Tron, right? I told you to play Tron. Uh. Well, I, I came to you and I'm like, look, I have four decks
0: with me. Here's my current raking of them. Uh, And the order was Tron, Bogles, or Bogles, however you like to pronounce it. Grixis Control and Traverse Shadow. And Grixis Control and Traverse Shadow were kind of way down the list and not really serious considerations. And you basically said, you know, Bogles gets beat up by Tron. Seems to be a lot of it around maybe Tron was the better choice, which is kind of what I wanted to hear anyway. So I went with that, sleeved up Tron. It was the first time I'd ever played the deck, kind of spent a few hours learning it the night before and, and trying to figure out, optimal basically sequencing and how do you maximize your odds and i kind of not having a background in tron i just hyper prioritize all turn three trons like hyper aggressive mulliganings always leading with kind of a chromatic star on turn one as opposed to an expedition map where the chromatic star had the possibility of giving me turn three tron Uh, untapped and a expedition map was unable to do so i was just always focused on turn three tron and it paid me over the course of the tournament the deck felt great awesome I, i don't want to derive something from a positive result that may not have been there but while there are runaway tron games absolutely you just put Karn to play on turn three. There are a lot of really intricate games and a lot of really difficult decisions as far as, you know, when do I deploy my walking ballistas? Is it right to plus Karn? Is it right to minus Karn? You know, how should I sequence this turn? There there was a lot of really interesting play decisions and I actually really enjoyed playing the deck. I thought it was a lot of fun. You know, got a nice little 12 and three result for my efforts. So uh, I'm a Karn guy for right now and I don't think it's the best deck in modern I'm not going to say it's the most skill intensive deck, but there's something there, a lot more than I thought was there. um, And I would happily play the deck again.
1: Cool. I I mean, I think Tron is very good. If, If you're doing this thing where you're like going all in on turn three Tron, do you think there's merit to like a Street Wraith bobble build? Huh.
0: That's an interesting take. So you just minimize the size of your deck. Just think about it. Yeah, think about it. I, Don't need an answer right now. I'm thinking about it. You you caught my attention. And again, this kind of goes back to like the metamorphos thing. Are we just going to realize that like, wow, we should have been playing these cards all along. Is a 52 card Tron deck better than a 60 card Tron deck every day of the week if you have to play Misha's Bauble and Street Rate to get there? And it's possible. These decks are really interesting to build in that this isn't going to apply to a large percentage of our audience, but they're kind of like Pokemon TCG decks where... 46 of the cards you have to play are completely locked. And then there's like these little tweaks along the way that really give your deck character. And they remind me of vintage decks in that regards too, where like you don't have a lot of choice. There's this core that you're never, ever going to get away from. And that's what Tron is. But there's these little flex slots where you're kind of getting your optimal edge from. Uh, I think tinkering with those slots is cool. I think maybe just being like, all right, I don't care about any of these slots. All I care about is making Tron as soon as possible. It's interesting to me. I would certainly explore it. Yeah, I'm in. I'll definitely play a league at some point with 52 card Tron. That'll be its official name from this point forward.
1: All right. Yeah, I feel like this was a list at some point. I don't think I ever thought about this on my own, but... You think it was out there in the ether already? I think it was. I don't even know where to begin looking for this though. All right. So you you had fun doing some different stuff. You tron the hell out of people. What did you lose to? Uh, So
0: my three losses were to... Esper Gorio's Vengeance, which I'm so glad you actually brought this up, because I really want to talk about that deck. <laughs> I, I lost to Esper Gorio's Vengeance, Mardu Pyromancer.
1: Ooh, how they get you? Yeah,
0: it, it just, I was so cold off the top of my deck. Like, basically, Assemble Tron, Ancient Stirrings, need to find Oblivion Stone in, like, nine draws between Chromatic Spheres and, you know, all that good stuff and and can't find anything. Man. And then I just kind of mulliganed a bunch in game one, I think, and, and did nothing. But the Esper Gorio's deck, I basically misplayed because the first seven, eight turns of the game play like he's just a Esper control deck. I had never even seen an Esper Gorio's list before. Oh, come on. No, no recollection of it whatsoever. And I just kind of play in a fashion where he's got a Obsidat in his graveyard uh, and I could make a, a small walking ballista when I'm at five life. And I just go get a completely irrelevant Ulamog instead. To like completely lock up the game next turn, and he just Goryeo's Vengeance, uh, his Obsidat, and kills me on the spot. So totally deserved the loss for not knowing the deck. But his list was really cool. I, I don't like I said I don't know the default build, but he had four gifts ungiven. He had the Unburial Rights package, you know, Lingering Souls, Obsidat, two mana Jace, the uh, Magic Origins Jace. If that's just the default build and no one else was excited about it as I am, so be it. I thought the deck looked really cool. You know, he was a guy who actually, interestingly enough, small world, I played Little League baseball with his brother. And then we get paired (laughs) at 7-0 in in the GP. And uh, also, I grew up in a town of 250 people. So just so you know how unlikely it is that I get paired against someone who I played Little League baseball with their brother.
1: That's crazy. Yeah,
0: yeah, but it did happen. And really interesting deck. I want to explore that archetype more. Making Lingering Souls through my Gifts Ungiven is exactly what I want to be doing in life. Ew. No, that's awesome.
1: Well, it's not good, but it's awesome. So I just sent you a link. This is a deck that I, I did remember uh existed, built by my homie Metsugan. And this is Mistress Bobble Tron. There are no street wraiths, but he has four platinum angels and two pact of Whoa.
0: That's serious.
1: And now I'm I'm searching through different Mistress Bobble Tron decks. Apparently there's a lot of them with Mistress Bobble and uh not a ton with street No Street wraith. from what I'm saying. Mishra's Bobble has I mean in the abstract it's it's worse than Street Wraith
0: because you're not getting the draw right away and that's very important with Tron. Like when you're searching for your next Tron piece, you can't you can't wait till your opponent's upkeep. That doesn't do you any good.
1: I mean, yeah, that's true.
0: So why why are we starting with Bobble? Just because it's an artifact? Can we start with Street Wraith instead? I mean, you're already screwed against mono red, right? It's it's an extremely difficult matchup. And granted, the life loss will come into play in other spots too, I'm sure, but I think I'd probably start with Street Wraith before I started with
1: Bauble here. Yeah, I don't know. They're all playing Bauble. Just decided to be way worse against Stony Silence. Hard to get much worse against Stony Silence, but... Uh... Oh, yeah, Unpappen. I remember now.
0: It, wait, is Poppin the player's name? Yeah. Okay, not familiar with that one.
1: Okay. He had, he had Probe and Bauble. Yeah, this deck is nice.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I, I'm into this approach. Uh, make your deck as small as possible because... Your core is Tron. The other stuff you're doing, it's like half the time when you even have your fatal push, you just don't want to play it because you want to just be getting more Tron pieces. So these flex slots are kind of a little goofy in that you don't really want them most of the time.
1: Yeah. Check out these two decks I sent you. I'm going to try to remember to post these on the show notes too.
0: Nice. Nice.
1: Anyway, Tron, Tron is dope, right? Tron's
0: dope. I'm in for a while. People want to talk Tron. I, I am more than happy to talk Tron at this moment. It's It's got my attention for the time being, at least until something new comes along, which oh, maybe maybe that's uh, what we should talk about.
1: Oh, yeah. Good segue. We got like 10 minutes left. So uh, we have some Jace, the Mind Sculptor, and Bloodbraid Elf Action in Modern. Uh, I don't really know how this happened, but it is what it is.
0: So you sound like you're not thrilled over there. You sound like you have some concerns about Jason and showing up.
1: I'm just kind of confused. It's a weird time. It's it's weird timing, and it's like, Jace, huh? Like, I I don't know. I'm, like, I, I don't think that either of these cards is, are going to be busted, right? With you. But Jace just strikes me as an odd one because it's going to be hella expensive. And, like, what's the risk reward on this, you know? How, how bad is it if you just have to immediately ban it again?
0: It's real bad. It's real bad. For sure. There's a huge cost to consumer confidence. I think what's more likely is that this has kind of been something on the table for a while. I have a feeling this is more tested than most unbans for safety. Our alumni and Andrew Brown and Michael Majors are... I'm believing that they're behind the scenes jamming modern games with Jace. They have the situation under control. Prints are maybe coming, which will help to... Address Jace. I, I don't know. That's certainly in the range of possibilities. Like this, I don't think this was done willy nilly. Again, pointing to Jace's inclusion in the upcoming Masters set, whatever it's called, M25, or however we're referring to it.
1: Yeah, that, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just have to think that probably more resources are being allocated to modern at this stage of the game when it's kind of proven itself to be the most popular format. Uh, more testing, more thought. And I guess I'm just willing to see where this goes. Like, I, I, It doesn't make sense to me to panic because there are a lot of vulnerabilities that these cards have. And are they some of the most powerful cards in the history of Magic? Certainly with Jace, I'd say Bloodbreed, a tier lower, but still a very powerful card for sure. But I don't know. I, I like exploring the space, seeing what happens. Granted, I recognize that maybe my card availability situation is different than other people. But on the whole, I think this is a positive and does a little bit to further diversify modern. That's my guess. If I'm wrong, I'll come back and eat my words.
1: So, uh you you
0: gotta have been brewing, right? I've been thinking. I I haven't actually put together some hard deck lists yet, but I I kind of am interested in the underexplored stuff. I mean, like the real obvious homes, Jeskai control, you know, blue white control for Jace, uh Jun for Bloodbraid Elf, we get it. We all know what's out there. They're powerful cards. They are going to find a slot in those decks um, in some numbers, but I'm more interested in the other possibilities that are out there. You know, I think about is there space for something like Oracle of Moldaya to enter the metagame? Is there possibly a Wargate scapeshift build which could utilize, utilize Jace effectively? Um, you know, play a more controlling game. As far as Bloodbraid, what kind of options are opened up with you know, even more cascaders does living end benefit from having access to even, even more reliable living end. I, I don't know. These are the, these are the things I'm finding interesting right now, as opposed to, Oh, these are just value cards included in already existing archetypes. There's a lot of new cards that have come into the fold since these cards were previously around. Um, and it'd be kind of silly to limit our scope to just the existing already known powerful archetypes.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Um, I'm I'm kind of I don't know. I let me see what uh jace lists I have on my phone cuz I was flying home on Monday morning after this happened and I was just like oh god. Need to <laughs> need to make a lot of decks. So uh basically I came up with there's going to be Jace Snapcaster decks, Jace Noble Hierarch decks and Jace Combo decks. Does that sound accurate?
0: Yes, that sounds accurate.
1: All of these are pretty exciting, at least to me. Yeah, like the the normal control decks, I'm just like, whatever. Like those decks are going to be what they are. And Jace changes like Jeskai control fundamentally enough to the point where it's like kind of interesting, but not really. Like I'll just get sick of it after a while. So like I'm very interested in like the Jace through the Breach decks, Jace Thopter Foundry. Kind of concerned about like Jace plus all the good one mana cards in like Rick's Death Shadow, or just like Blue Black Death Shadow.
0: Okay, talk a little bit more about that. Like, what what is specifically giving you concern?
1: Jace is good with cheap spells. Death Shadow has all the best cheap spells. The problem with Death Shadow is that like you could play something like Blue White Control and actually just like kind of go over the top of them and like grind them out in the mid to late. If you put a bunch of pressure on people and then they get to a point where like maybe they can stabilize and you just get a window to resolve Jace when your opponent's on the back foot. Like that is game. That is what Cobbley did.
0: Exactly. Right. I see your fears. I guess I would point to the fact that there are a wide variety of archetypes, which will ultimately not care about Jace. And that's hard to believe because it's such a powerful card, but something like affinity, how much does affinity care about Jace?
1: Uh, Basically zero. I mean, that's kind that's kind of like the saving grace, right? It's like, Okay, play Affinity, play Elves, play Lava Spike, right. play Ad Nauseam. Like, yeah, there's there's just so many decks that like actually don't care about it. But I don't know what happens when you have like Jace in Death Shadow, right? So like Death Shadow can be built to beat those decks, and you also have Jace to beat the decks that used to beat Death Shadow.
0: So it's just too much of a power upgrade um for decks which already have reasonable game plans. You know, maybe looking at Jace as like the defining card of archetypes is not the right way to really understand his impact on the modern format. Maybe he's just shoring up matchups which were previously problematic. Maybe Jace is a great sideboard card in Modern. That would be an interesting evolution for Jace, where, you know, kind of the role that Planeswalkers play a lot of the time in Standard, where they function as a different avenue of attack for post-board games, where things have kind of slowed down a little bit, um, where answers have gotten a little bit more hashed out. Maybe Jace steps into that role in Modern. That would be a really interesting evolution.
1: Right, and mid-range decks already kind of did this, where they would sideboard like uh, a Gideon ally of Zendikar or... Jace Architect of Thought, Karanos, things like that. And obviously Jace the Mind Sculptor is just going to like Different. overpower yeah. all of those cards, right? Yeah. Like you just don't play them anymore. Yeah.
0: yeah, so maybe it's taking away some of the diversity. But I think the metagame is just wide enough to kind of hash this stuff out. Metagame shifts in modern aren't what they used to be. They, they happen much slower. They kind of move in waves is how I visualize them now. They take a really long time to kind of crest and fall over the rest of the metagame. But they do happen. And I have to believe that Jace will be met with the same kind of response. You know, it it takes a super powerful card to kind of homogenize a a format that's as broad as Modern. Jace is the closest we've come. I still don't think it's going to get the job done. I think Modern is going to be just fine. And, you know, all of your favorite archetypes will still be present in the metagame because things will remain so wide that they'll still have their decks that they can prey on effectively.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. Bloodbreed Elf. Is probably gonna have less of an impact, but it is really interesting because now there's things like Kolagon's Command and Liliana the Last Hope. I have an interesting one for Bloodbraid
0: Elf. Totally Dude. not hashed out, but what about as foretold, teamer Bloodbraid Elf?
1: Oh yeah, because you get an ancestral. You have more ancestral, ways than Ancestral.
0: There's also a Wheel of Fortune, which like you have to build your deck in such a way that you can take advantage of a Wheel of Fortune, but if you if you work hard enough, like you're talking about eight ways to reliably cast a card that spent most of its existence banned uh, or restricted at least in, in you know, older magic formats. Wheel of Fortunes are not what they used to be, but there, there's still something there. Um, that kind of card drawing power, interesting to explore.
1: You know what you want to do with Wheel of Fortune? Mm. Empty your hand as quickly as possible. Yeah. And Faithless Looting could probably help uh, with that. Okay. So, okay. I, I don't know if there's like some backdoor weirdo synergies, but like, yeah, maybe, maybe you're like Wheel of Fortuning away Lingering Souls or something. I don't know.
0: So you're just like a fair Wheel of Fortune deck. That would be really, really bizarre, interesting. Um, I'm excited by the idea. I, I can't really visualize I can't get the glue there. Like I, I see the the start of four ancestral, four wheel of fortune. Four blood Raid, four As-Roy.
1: What if you're bloodbraid, as foretold, ancestral, and then like goblin guide, idolon, lava spikes? Huh. In Wheel of Fortune.
0: Interesting. Interesting angle. I would explore it. It seems powerful, right? Like it's very difficult for decks to kind of fade you out. You're always going to be refilling. Granted, you're drawing some dead cards once in a while, which is kind of devastating. I don't know. There, there's stuff to explore. There's there's cool decks with Bloodbraid Elf beyond just like, oh, I have Bloodbraid Elves in my Jun deck right now, which like yeah. a, a lot of these decks, I think in the fair decks that are using Bloodbraid Elf, you're going to see Bloodbraid Elf in lower numbers than you would expect because a lot of these decks are going to be around, tra- built around Traverse, and Bloodbraid Elf is going to be an excellent Traverse target in any deck that can cast it, but it's kind of just filling the role of the, like, one Snapcaster you see in some of the Traverse Shadow builds that's kind of what Bloodbraid Elf does. I don't know if it actually does it better than Snapcaster does, to be honest with you. We'll
1: see. Yeah, I also like I also like Hazorette a lot in those spots. Right,
0: right. There's there's competition for Bloodbraid spot. It's not just, oh, I play four Bloodbraid's all the time. So I'm kind of more interested in the possibilities of Bloodbraid Elf. They're more exciting than Jace because Jace is just going to be like this hammer, whereas Bloodbraid Elf can function a little bit more as a scalpel and do some cool things if you work a little harder with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, Restore Balance is sweet. So. Yeah, another one.
0: Yeah, all the all the zero mana spells worth exploring at this point. And we have reliable ways to get to them now um, when you add As for told into the mix. so.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exciting times. Uh, it is weird that it's like, hey, Modern's this great format. It's better than it's ever been. Let's do some weird shit to it. But, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah, I, I think nobody was expecting it. Kind of came out of left field after such a slam dunk. Pro Tour GP combination, but here we are. I'm excited for the possibilities. We'll see what it brings.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, definitely exciting times. And what's the worst case scenario? We go back to what it was, like these cars get banned again. I mean, obviously that is not ideal, especially if people are paying like $200 per Jace or whatever, and then it's like, ah, sorry, just kidding.
0: Yeah, the ban of Jace is scary for that reason. I, I think there's going to have to be, there's going to be a high barrier to Jace getting re-banned. Uh, which is in and of itself problematic. But honestly, Magic would benefit from moving away from bans as hard as they possibly could at this point because you see how it's become this kind of persistent topic that we can't get away from at this point.
1: Yeah, everyone is scared as as they kind of should be, and it yeah. sucks.
0: Yeah, you know. so I get the desire to show, look, we're bringing cards back in. We're not taking cards away. If things go really wrong, though, it's going to be problematic. And that's why I have to believe that this was a well-thought-out well-tested integration of one of the most powerful cards ever this is not something you can just do willy-nilly i hope to not be proven wrong
1: yeah man i do think that things just end up being so bad if jace has to get banned that it's got to be fine
0: i'm with you that's that's
1: gonna until proven otherwise that's my approach there's always lava spike man if if people if people are playing jace getting you down there's always lava spike or you just Ornithopter them to death. Either one is going to get the job done. Yeah, but then you're playing Ornithopter. Or at least, like, Lava Spike is kind of playable.
0: Um, I, don't, I don't want to play either one of those cards, but someone will. That's what matters. As long as someone is doing it for us and, and keeping the Jaces in check, then we can do other stuff.
1: Yeah, so do you want to do some homework? And then, like, next week we can just, like, compare our brews? Oh, that would be exciting. Compare what we found on the internet. I think, uh... Should we should we split
0: responsibility? Should one of us be like the Jace guy and one be the Bloodbraid guy, or should we just grab everything?
1: I'm down to be Jace guy. You seem pretty excited about Bloodbreed Elf and uh, Wheel of Time or whatever the card is called.
0: Yeah, I don't even know what it's called. I'm always going to call it Wheel of Fortune. Sorry for people who don't know what I'm talking about. Go find it. It's in Time Spiral. It functions like a Wheel of Fortune.
1: And and now that this podcast is out, they're probably $30. So
0: <laughs> I hope not. I hope we, aren't, we don't have that dramatic of an effect on Wheel of Fortunes. That would be pretty intense. Because I haven't bought mine yet, so give me some time first.
1: Unless you broke it, or just like you know, someone out there like buy Brian a co- uh, a playset, you know? Yeah, I'd
0: appreciate that. Thank just you. Just doing a solid. Thank you, game fans. Way to come through for me.
1: See, so yeah, man, I'll take Jace. If you want to do weird Bloodbraid stuff, if you have like a really sweet Jace idea, by all means, like work on that. And then, you know, I'll do the same with Bloodbraid. But I highly doubt it.
0: Nice. So our listeners have something really exciting to look forward to next week: our Jace and Bloodbraid deck dumps although we got to get back to standard man standard is kind of cool and we've spent so much time away from it so Dude, we have a split assignment for next
1: week for i sure. i the deckless dump from monday was incredible amazing and i built amazing. i so built good. like 20 decks on my account
0: that's awesome yeah this is kind of like this is the correct solution i'm convinced like this is how you accomplish wizard's goal of you know, not giving us access to the data. Still, the jury's out as to whether that's the correct goal. I'm not really talking about that right now. I'm just saying if that's their goal, this is how you achieve it. We still get to see all the creativity, the amazing lists, the really cool avenues for exploration. I was more excited about this announcement than the Jace Bloodbraid announcement to be honest with you this is really great stuff for us deck building nerds and us people who love to see all these innovations and love to you know i know you're an iterator you love to see these first takes and make these decks into something really solid um and there is plenty of kind of juicy fruit for mining here and oh yeah uh, i'm excited this is what we're going to get every week going forward this is awesome
1: yeah i can't wait i'm already talking to cedric about like different columns that i can do uh, with all this information, while we were podcasting, I already tweeted out a modern deck list. Like, nice. I, I can't Very help cool. myself, you know?
0: No, this is good stuff. I'm with you,
1: 100%. All right. Magic is in a rad spot right now, I think.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm loving it. I'm having a great time playing Magic. Um, all formats. Modern got on my good side. It took it a little while, but it's certainly there now. I know it's on your good side right now after a great performance, as it should be. Good, good for you, Magic. Way to get your way to get your groove back.
1: Oh yeah, I think I think we're on an uptrend here. I also got uh, an overlay completed, so I could potentially start streaming.
0: Are, are you committing to that right now? Because you've you've now said this out loud. I, people are going to be clamoring. There's
1: a reason I said it while we're recording. It is to kind of hold myself accountable. We'll see how that goes.
0: Okay, good. I I think people will be very excited to hear that. I will make no such promises. Although I'd love to stream, but the world keeps making me work. I don't know why. It, yeah. it just seems it seems to be my lot in life to have a job.
1: Well, you should figure that thing out. But I mean, oh, we
0: will we'll if, figure it if out if I'm actually.
1: streaming and you want to join me at some point, we could probably make that happen.
0: Right, right, good idea. Team game streams, I like it. Hell yeah! Do you want to do a question from our Discord before we wrap this show up?
1: Yeah, we absolutely should.
0: Yeah, and also, uh, kind of on that topic, we have gotten a tremendous amount of support recently for our patreon page um oh my i am God. incredibly humbled and thankful for all the people who are supporting us all the people who are new members to the game discord and participating in what's a really great community um and just people who are like letting us do what we want to do it it's really awesome
1: yeah it it has been insane i'm just yep. like absolutely loving it <laughs> jonathan carter asked what is the next hot mtg finance spec
0: we just gave it. Wheel of, <laughs> Wheel of Fortune. Go buy them all up. I really hope we don't spike fake Wheel of Fortune dramatically. I kind of like don't know if I want that on my conscience yet, but yeah. sure, that's, that's our hot spec. Oh, this is a, a kind of neat self-contained one. This is from Kevin Asore. He asks, what decks get better and worse after the bans in Modern? So kind of existing decks that are are impacted outside of the decks that will include... Jace or Bloodbraid, who stock Rose, who stock Fall, given their inclusion in the metagame?
1: I mean, we we sort of talked about this, and I'm sure we'll have a better picture of this next week. But for Jace, I do think it is just any deck that ignores Jace is going to get slightly better, right? Like, Burn especially, like, does not care about Jace, typically has good matchups against, like, blue control decks. And if people are playing Jun or other various mid-range decks with Bloodbraid Elf, then man burn burn is gonna have a good time
0: you know who kind of laughs in the face of a jace karn karn kind of laughs oh, in yeah. the face of everyone but he oh, will yeah. happily devour your jace if you want to tap out on turn four
1: and your blood Elves, man
0: mm-hmm. and there's yeah. this there's this guy ulamog who often travels with karn who doesn't even care if you have counter spells he'll just take all your stuff so if you want to play the game for 10 turns karn will find a way to punish you for doing so uh as will the rest of his colorless buddies so Tron is trending up, not just because it was kind to me this weekend. Um, I actually do believe Tron is, is likely to trend up until people show it the proper respect.
1: So I, I agree with both of our takes. However, my my take beats yours pretty badly. In the, in the, in the heads up. In the heads up. Well,
0: you, you were the the big winner for this week. So I'll let you continue your hot streak until next week when I come back and destroy you with my sick Bloodbraid Elf Wheel of Fortune decks.
1: Yeah, and I'll just draw more lava spikes, man
0: not going to work there's going to be some kind of oh I could play uh oh what's it called cascading sunlight or something like that gain four and dude that's not even good and cascade I know it's not good don't crush my dreams Jerry I don't care if it's not good and then I'm going to put into play the exalted enchantment and we're just going to cascade through everything and the only thing I'll ever hit in my deck is a wheel of fortune
1: and it's going to be sweet <laughs> basically just going infinite right all right Uh, that's game